1: Hi everybody, welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today we're talking with Kathleen Jean Moore. She is an environmental philosopher, climate activist, and writer, the author or or co-editor of a dozen books that celebrate and defend the beautiful reeling world. We're discussing her most recent book, Great Tide Rising, toward clarity and moral courage in a time of planetary change. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, what got you involved in, in writing and speaking about climate change? Well, for
2: years, you know, I was a uh, a nature writer, and I would write stories about my excursions into wild and wet places, and it was such a celebration, and it was such a joyous thing, but gradually it dawned on me that um, as I was celebrating these small lives, they were disappearing as I wrote, and I, I just... I I was feeling very uneasy about that, and then I went to a conference, and I heard Gus Speth from Yale say, the only thing we have to do to make sure that we leave a ruined world for our children and our grandchildren is to continue doing exactly what we are doing now. I thought, our children and our grandchildren? Ruined world? I thought, my Zoe, my little... My little 10-year-old granddaughter over in Vancouver, a ruined world, and suddenly I thought, you know, that's it. It's over. The only thing I'm going to do now with my professional and writing life is to try to save a world for these little children.
1: So I, I know in your book you have a, a, a beautiful story about um, starfish, and and I think it was your grandson. Uh, can you share that story with us? Oh, I'd be pleased. This is from
2: the first chapter, which is called At Low Tide, Watching the World Go Away. We're waiting in rubber boots at the rim of the sea, my grandson and I. Behind us is a limestone ledge that shelters green anemones and limpets. It's a silver day in Alaska, shining, shivering seas, and clouds so low you feel you could bump your head. My grandson leans over to poke a graying starfish. This one is soft. That means it's sick. This child is three years old, and already he knows the signs of starfish wasting syndrome. He gives the sea star a last poke with his forefinger and stands to gaze around the cove. His mom is around here someplace, he says, wrinkling his brow and not finding her. He's sick. He needs a mom. I think that is undoubtedly true. Just last year, this cove was full of sea stars. We saw them in every damp crevice, heaps of them. This year, we come across only two or three stars here and there splayed on the shingle. These that remain are wasting away, too, a hideous process. Lesions form. The tissues around them decay so the starfish flattens and falls apart. An arm may crawl away, but soon it, too, turns to mush. Around our boots, torn arms and the wispy scraps of wasted sea stars float on the incoming tide. It's a catastrophe among many on a planet growing sour and hot, and I am afraid for this small child. If only there were a mom around here who could shelter the young lives and comfort us all. But what would such a mother do? A statement of scientific consensus led by Stanford scientists has badly shaken me. Unless all nations take immediate action, by the time today's children are middle-aged, the life support systems of the earth will be irretrievably damaged. I am holding the hand of a small child in a yellow raincoat and orange bib overalls. His little boots have long ago filled with water. His hair is damp and smells of salt, and I am staring at my boots and thinking of what it could possibly mean to this child to live on a planet whose life-supporting mechanisms have frayed and fallen apart.
1: Uh, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, you know, that, that that was, having read that, your book yesterday, um, your, your book is beautiful, and um, you. I think that's um was a great way to present such a story that people aren't wanting to talk about or that we're fighting about which, which baffles me um, you know that that this is happening and that that were a lot of people are actually okay with it happening well it's an
2: astonishment isn't it and I'm not sure people are okay with it happening as much as they're simply not able to bring themselves to understand what's happening it's it's a it's a, a guard. Gentuan uh, monster to contemplate
1: so um, can you, I, I know this could probably take the whole show so we'll try to keep this very brief but can you explain to us what actually is happening what's climate change and how, how what, what's going on? Yeah, you know, um, there's always climate
2: change. The Earth over millennia has gradually up and down, changed its temperature. But those natural processes are being absolutely overwhelmed by this rapid human uh, change that we're imposing on the world. And I think people understand the physics of it, that the sun's rays beat down on the Earth, and then they bounce off. Um, And generally, they are radiated at at a a rate that makes the life on Earth sustainable. But now with carbon dioxide and methane and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere in such huge quantities, the result of all of our burning of fossil fuels and other forces, um, those rays are getting captured as they leave the um, atmosphere, and and then they're being radiated back out. So the Earth is heating, and the heating of the Earth is uneven, and that, of course, um, causes wild variations in the way the winds move and the oceans move, and uh, so we have what we are now not so much calling climate change, but climate chaos and unpredictable, unpredictable changes in the way the weather works.
1: Uh, climate chaos is definitely a good way to put it. Um, that That's how it, it feels. I mean, it's uh, almost Christmas, and it has been 10 degrees uh, Celsius where I live. Usually it's about minus 20 degrees Celsius, and with snow, and we haven't had snow yet. We're supposed to today, but it's very late. And, you know, that's not the norm for where we are. I mean, I'm in the mountains, and it's high up and cold, and it's supposed to be cold. And then in the summer, we're having you know, these heat waves that we've never had before. And uh, it's definitely palpable. Um, We've been talking about it for years, but now we definitely, you can see the changes happening yeah, you know it's true. We
2: thought, you know these are changes that are going to happen to our children and our grandchildren. And we look around and they're coming uh, far faster than anyone predicted. I live in Oregon, and it isn't raining. It hasn't rained for weeks. And in Southern California, in the middle of winter, there will have forest fires at Christmas time. it's uh, It's terrifying, and I, I I think about I think about the Arctic ice, ice, which is of course, relevant to where you live and and the great melting that is occurring there, and the predictions that it will not be frozen area for millennia ever again.
1: So what is it exactly that we are doing as humans that's contributing to this? Everything, right? We're, what what uh, aren't we doing, I guess, <laughs> but so, <laughs> right, what, what are we doing right. first?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting here kind of stunned. Okay, we uh, <laughs> I have created, for a variety of reasons, we can go into a culture that is, is deeply unsustainable. Uh, my lifestyle, if it were to be sustained by everybody, would require seven Earths, not just one, but seven. So we're overshooting we're overshooting the capacity of the earth to support us. We are emitting greenhouse gases at a rate far beyond the ability of the atmosphere to disperse them, and the resulting, of course, has to do with um, climate change. So it's the burning up, the burning up, how we move ourselves, how we feed ourselves, how we educate ourselves. It requires something to be burnt, burning up to create the electricity or the movement. And uh, that, of course, has consequences. Um, there are... Um, we are transforming uh, all the little lives on the earth into human biomass. And and, um, at any rate, I could go on this way too, but you've got me uh, into the narrative of the great unraveling and I I don't like to live there, but I am very, very Mm -hmm. frightened by what we're doing. Um, It can't continue.
1: You you know, I, I agree. We can't continue. And, and, um, I, I was brought up being very aware of the planet. Even before, we didn't know how it was affecting, affecting our health. We just knew it was affecting our planet. And uh, my mom is a huge environmental activist. And she chose to retire. And she built a straw bale house. And they only have solar energy. And they have a well. But she had to actually save up to have that lifestyle, which was oh. really sad, right? Like, she had to retire to get that back or to get that um, and so that was her dream and, and her retirement. So now they have this house and they're sustainable and they grow their own food and they have their own chickens. Um, not even acceptable. Well, it's acceptable, but it, it's in the even in the um, where they live. Um, half the people think that they're, you know, a little bit off the wall because why wouldn't you ha- want, you know, things to be easier because we have that available to us but she wanted to reduce her carbon footprint and make a huge impact in in her you know the rest of her life and um, what is sad to me is that she had to save and plan that for years to be able to do that
2: yes and and more power to her because she's pushing back against very very powerful forces that quite deliberately are making it hard for us to live our lives in alternative ways. I would love not to drive my car. I would love not to fly. But for, de- for decades, the fossil fuel industry has been killing programs that would have provided alternative ways to get around electric cars trains and so forth. I would I would love to be able to eat organic food that's raised right here in, in my backyard, which is one of the most fertile places on Earth, but, but the um, industrialized agriculture has made that very difficult with regulations and subsidies and so forth. So it's no accident that it's hard for us to live lives that we believe in. Our lives are designed by forces that would have us use fossil fuels.
1: Um, yeah, w- which is sad because I think I, I think it should be encouraged that we all have solar panels and I know there are other countries that do that. Um, I don't think that that's, um, uh, so, so common in, in North America. Um, definitely not in Canada, definitely not where I live. Um, I'm mm-hmm. in the middle of oil and gas central. Ah. So, you know, if we're not supporting our industry, then, um, it, it's, it's not acceptable. So the, those, um, it, it, I don't think I know anybody that has a solar panel here aha uh-huh. even though you
2: have abundant solar power I mean you have yeah. sunshine yeah
1: yeah, I th- yeah yeah we have t- we have a lot of sun here yeah. Um, so one thing I found interesting in your book, and I actually had never thought of this before, but um, that climate change is a violation of human rights. I've never heard that, that spoken of that way before. And uh, that really hit home to me. I found that very powerful. Can you just talk on that a little bit? Yes, I can. You know, it seems to me that uh the way that climate
2: change is driving people from their homes, um driving them away from their livelihoods, threatening their water and their and their air and their uh health uh, it's going to be the greatest violation of human rights this world has ever seen. And it's hard to know where to start. Um but we could start for example with the right to life. Um yeah, and the and the ways that the our lives are going to be affected by this pollution from fossil fuel industry. Um, I was just looking on online for some of the health effects, and uh, the list, even without going into detail, uh, is, is very revealing. Uh, what are some of the things that are going to affect our ability to exercise our inalienable, supposedly, right to life? Well, temperatures that are related to the death and illness of people, particularly the elderly and children, air quality impacts, extreme weather events. My own um, brother-in-law has been wiped out, totally wiped out by hurricanes. He's lost 40 pounds because he can't get food down in the islands where he lives. Um, vector-borne diseases, the mosquitoes, the um, the other kinds of things that carry carry diseases, water-related diseases as the floods come through our cities and right into our right into our um, supposed filtration systems, food safety, and then mental health and well-being. Uh, the, you start thinking about all these effects on our right to life, and you don't even need to go down the list to other kinds of rights that we have—liberty. What is liberty when your fields are flooded? Uh, what is the right of self-determination or the right of a livelihood when, when drought takes away your farm? Um, the right to the pursuit of happiness? When you're a refugee fleeing from these forces into areas that are already crowded and that don't really want you? Um, the insecurity that that, that that creates, the the dangers? Um, uh, the, as I say, we're talking about massive violation of human rights, not only by the by the state actors, but by corporate actors as well.
1: Um, I want to talk about this um, more. You brought up a lot of topics that, um, that I think I want, to, I want to dive into, but we're going to take a quick break and uh, we'll be back shortly. But we're, we're talking today with Kathleen Jean Moore and we're discussing her book, Great Tide Rising. We'll be back.
3: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Have you figured out what to attract in your life in order to make it successful? There are those who can and those who can learn. Your intensified energy gives you willpower to move the bar forward and be happy. Happy people spread their energy throughout their lives, and once they figure it out, go on to be successful at nearly everything they set their mind to. Join host Ellen Morano and her panel of guest experts and co-hosts on Generate Massive Energy for a Fulfilling Life, Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Health and Wellness. Do you find yourself caring for people in multiple generations? Are you exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed? Instead of spending hours searching for resources and information, Dr. Merrill and her guests will provide you with practical, everyday information and solutions to help make your life easier. Tune in to Caught Between Generations, Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. health and wellness channel opinions options answers you're listening to voice america health and wellness
1: Hi everybody, welcome back. Today we're talking with Kathleen Dean Moore and we're discussing her book, Great Tide Rising. So, Kathleen, before the break, we talked about um, it, this being a violation of human rights, and you, you brought up a lot of really good topics. And the reason why I, I chose to do the show and I reached out to you, and I know you were a little surprised at first because you saw this was a health show, but um, on a daily basis, I'm dealing with health problems that are affected by environmental change. Um, my own health was affected by it um, in several ways. One, um, I, I have chronic Lyme, which is under control. But mm-hmm. the epidemic of Lyme is more of an issue because of global warming, and the ticks are moving because places are warmer for them. So it's becoming, um, it, it's more, it, it's everywhere instead of just in, in certain areas. Um, there's also the, the pollution that especially where I live, um, people are always surprised when I tell them that our our air in Calgary is rated a D for air quality because we can see the mountains. They're an hour away. People feel like because everybody in this city is so active outside, they feel like we're um, you know in tune with nature but in fact we're a very large city with a lot of pollution and we're not we're very behind in, in um, making the changes that need to be made. And, you know, that's a conversation, those are conversations I have every day, and people aren't realizing, and there's so much more, I mean, that when we're talking about um, the quality of food that people are eating has also changed. And that's the same mentality of why people aren't, you know, making the changes to global warming is—we should be able to get away with processed food, and that should be okay. And, and, and we're—we we're, I feel like we're going down this rabbit hole, and it's going to be very difficult for us, even though we're already making those changes to come out of it. <laughs>
2: You, you make really good points here on the West Coast, of, up in Oregon and down in California. It was simply impossible. There was nowhere to go to escape the smoke from the forest fires. To the coast, you couldn't. To the mountains, you couldn't. There were fires everywhere. And in you stay in your home, how are you going to filter the air in your home? So the question I would ask is, who has the right to do this to us? not as an accident, not as an unintended or unknowing consequence, but in full knowledge that this is the effect of the industry on people's health. Who has that right and who gave them that right? But the other point I would make is that it's easy when we're so close to the industry, in such close proximity, to um, forget that we are so close to another way of life. You know, we are so close Joanna Macy says that we we have we can choose our frameworks for thinking about this. I mean, there's the business as usual framework of the industries that say, yeah, you know, everything's gonna be fine, and that the market forces, the, the invisible hand of greed, will will save us. And then there's this the narrative unraveling, uh, where I have been so long. The narrative of unraveling that things fall apart, the center will not hold. We are going, as you say, down this rabbit hole. But then there's the third frame that we can choose to live in, and that's where I'm starting to, to put my time, and that is the, the narrative of the great transformation. And when you look around the world, there are so many projects. There are so many people getting up every morning, putting on their shoes if they have them, and going to do the good work of the world. There's so many new ideas and so many ways of doing it. And the thing is, they all make sense. They make economic sense, they make moral sense, they make medical sense. I think we're really close to making that transformation.
1: So one thing, um, you used a, a a phrase um, the growing industry of overlooking can you explain that yeah it's um
2: it, it, it is on so many different levels and different dimensions. On, on the most basic level, I think it has to do with the way in which our government presumably requires certain kinds of studies to take place before they will permit a pipeline or a sludge pond or something. And there's a growing industry of consultants and analysts who are very willing to be paid um, to not find any problems. So and you, you hire someone to go look for salmon um, at the site of an LNG, uh, liquid natural gas plant, and oh, I don't see any salmon. Do you see any salmon? I see no problems with this. So, so there's that, but there's this far larger culture of overlooking, and that is that is the most, the most scary, that if you look at people who are very, very concerned about climate change, um, what percent of that is of us is that? it's seventy one percent now who really are caring about climate change in the United States. You ask them how often do they say the words "climate change" in the last two weeks, and they say not once. There's this terrible silencing um, around climate change and the overlooking, the culture, the industry of overlooking, We're comfortable. Don't bother us.
1: So so why do you think that is? is Is there a taboo against talking about it?
2: Yeah, you know, I I don't know. I think there are many, many causes. Um, But one of the causes, I think, in my own friends with my own neighbors, um, they're very reluctant to talk to me about climate change or listen to me, which they often are required to do. Um, I think it's partly because of what Lewis Mumford calls the magnificent bribe. We have accepted the terms of a bribe. We can have anything we want. We can have imported pineapples and Ecuadorian roses. We can have mega homes and mega cars. We can have instant gratification, one or two day delivery, overnight delivery of anything we want in the world, on the condition that we never ask what it really costs. And we never look into all the destruction and deaths that went into the making of that. or We don't look into the future to see what the results of those decisions might be. And so here we are, caught in this bribe. So if people want to talk about climate change, really what they're talking about, the choices I've made in my life and the choices I've allowed to be made in my name. So it's a very uncomfortable uncomfortable discourse.
1: You know, that's a... um just reminded me of, of uh, my own grocery shopping um, I for years um, have ordered online from a but it's from a, a, an organic um, grocery delivery place and um It actually, I mean, they're in the area anyway. I think it saves gas even though they're delivering because I'm not going to the store. And Mm -hmm. they tell me how far my, my produce and everything has traveled. And so when I'm done my shopping, I get a tally of how far my groceries have traveled to get to me Um, it's also all organic which is very important to me and but I I think you know if we go to a regular grocery store we don't know what's happened to our food we don't know where it's come from and and we don't have that awareness of of its history which is part of this right is I want to know where things have come from and 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 what's happened but I think that's also part of how how I was raised which a lot of people don't even think about
2: yeah it's tricky you know on on the one hand uh, we really are called to live lives we believe in we really are called to make choices that are healthy not only for us but also for the earth and all the earth's children we are morally obliged to do that on the other hand on the other hand i don't think that individual choices are going to solve this problem i think that's going to take systematic change um, at a far greater level and so even as we even as we are choosing between the green bell pepper that was raised a mile away and, and the uh, pineapple that was raised in South America, even as we're making that choice, I think we're called also to join together with other people to really express the, um, the, the uh, moral imperative, the moral urgency of action. So um, it's one thing to it's one thing to choose carefully in the grocery store. It's quite another to stand outside the grocery store and hand people a pamphlet asking them to insist that the grocery store point out or list or put a sign up that shows the origin of all the food. Or or to stand in front of the of the uh, other kind of grocery store and insist that they not sell poisons that would kill plants and animals and insects in the same place they're, they're selling food. So I think there's, an, I'm trying to, The people who care, I think, it's time now to notch it up and to think not only in terms of our own actions, conscientious actions, which are absolutely essential,
1: but also um, to think in terms of our our public action. So um, you mentioned um, a moral obligation, uh, which I don't think a lot of people think about in relationship to this. So can you just explain that a little bit? yeah you know um
2: people think of climate change as a scientific issue and a technological issue and it is and they think of it as an economic issue it absolutely is it's a national security issue all these things but i think that fundamentally it's a moral problem and it calls for a moral response um in what way is climate change of a a, a catastrophically immoral uh, a set of circumstances you know i um I did a book a couple years ago where I wrote to a hundred of the world's moral leaders, um, people like Thich Nhat Hanh and um, Desmond Tutu and Sheila Wat Cloutier, the head of the Inuit Circumpolar Council up in your area, and um, asked them this question, do we have a moral obligation to leave a world as rich in possibilities as the world that was left to us? Got back these Beautiful responses in 2,000 words or less. Put them together in a book called Moral Ground. And what it came down to, I think, is this. They listed um, reasons that we were able to categorize into 13, but the ones that spoke most strongly are four. Um, That climate change is a violation, as we already said, of human rights it's also a violation of justice the people who are reaping the benefits so called of the profligate use of fossil fuels are not the ones who are bearing the costs and it's the most innocent among us the most silent the future generations the plants and animals the children the economically marginalized who are bearing these costs third i think it's a failure of reverence that this earth that has been left to us by our forebears by evolution is the most extraordinary, amazing, and I would say sacred place, and we are grinding it up and using it to feed ourselves in every possible way. But most important, I think, is the fourth reason, and that is that climate change is a betrayal of the children. We held them in our arms. We promised them. We said, we would do anything for you. We would give you the world. We're utterly betraying our promise to them. It's a betrayal. As I say, and so, so yes, this is an economic thing, and it calls for scientific and technological changes, absolutely. But um, it, it also is a is a moral crisis such as we have never seen.
1: Um, well, you know, it, it sounds like it, and as you said, I think a lot of people don't think about it this way. It's you know, we all recycle and and do those things, but but um, the moral obligation makes it. Uh, Different looking at it that way, that we do have this obligation to do the right thing, and the right thing is to protect our planet.
2: Yeah, you know, um, we're used to thinking of ethics as a scolding kind of thing a uh, shake your fist at people, shake your finger at people. Um, the ethics of prohibition don't do that, don't do that, don't buy this. But what if we thought about ethics as an ethics of affirmation? What do you love too much to lose? What do you believe is more valuable than anything else in your life? And then what are you going to do to protect what you value so much? What are you going to do to save what you love? And when people come together, I think, around what they love and yeah. upon what they value and design their lives in that way, then I think that we have a far more affirmative, a far more joyous and a far more um, effective uh, w- way of thinking about our obligations.
1: Um, Yeah, I definitely agree. And we're going to take a quick break. We're we're talking today with Kathleen Dean Moore. She is the author of Great Tide Rising. We'll be back shortly.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: Have you heard of nutritional balancing? Your body's biochemistry affects the mental, physical, and emotional aspects of your life. Many of the diseases we face are related to an imbalance of the mind, body, and spirit. Find out how to get everything back in line when you tune in to Healing Treasures of Wisdom with host Daniel Solomon. Learn how to heal yourself and your family every week. Listen Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Kathleen Dean Morris. She's the author of Great Tide Rising Toward Clarity and Moral Courage in a Time of Planetary Change. So, Kathleen, um, you know, there's a lot of people who say that that global warming is, um, you know, there, there's nothing that we can do about it or it's a hoax. What do you say to people like that?
2: Oh, what do I say to people who say it's a hoax? Well, that's yeah. very different. That, that has a I have changed what I said. Before, I mean, maybe like about four years before, I didn't say anything to them. I figured they would learn. I figured that that the more that they were exposed to the truth, that they would come around. And that I also realized that the number of people who thought that global warming was a hoax was approximately the same as the number of people who think that Elvis Presley is still alive. And I didn't think it was a force to be reckoned with. That turned out to be a serious mistake. Now, um... Obviously, uh, climate denial has become a badge of, of identity. It's become who people are. It's not about evidence. It's not about values. It's about, it's about identifying with a set of people who are angry, not at climate change, not at the fossil fuel industry, but it's something else that I can't quite identify. So now when I speak to them, uh, which I have a very hard time finding occasion to do, by the way, Um, when I go to my in-laws in Ohio, all of the people who are climate deniers, they have already agreed among themselves before I arrive that they will not talk about climate change. But when I talk about it, I talk about what they really care about. Uh, I talk about clean water. I talk about healthy children. I talk about all those values that we have in common. And then I don't really take that very much farther Right away, you know, here's here's what we here's what we share, here's what we love. We want good food, we want clean water, and it's only later that we start thinking together about how we might achieve those. Could we? And we're still not talking about climate change. We're still not talking about fossil fuels, but we are talking about incremental changes we could make. Do they need to spray, spray poisons on that field next to you? Do you really need to have this kind of? Um, bird sanctuary destroyed by the next Kmart, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, we don't talk about climate change, but we talk about the changes that climate action would bring about.
1: But, you know, I, there are some people that say, well, th- those birds are, they'll just go somewhere else. So it's okay to do that. Yeah. You know, th- and yeah. then we're, they're running out of places to go.
2: <laughs> that is really true. Um, Oh, we could certainly start talking about the silencing (laughs) and the silences and the extinction. You know, um, Daniel Quinn, the author of Ishmael, had this metaphor. He said, we're like people who live on the hundredth floor of a penthouse, a lovely penthouse, and every day we send workers down to the foundation to remove bricks from the foundation and bring them up into the penthouse to make it more lavish and more lovely. We might be able to do that for 30 years or even 100 years, but much longer than that, and we will have created channels of emptiness in the foundation of our lives, and the whole edifice will collapse, and nothing will save us, not even the lavishness of our lives. So, you know, when you think about um, extinction, when you think about how, um, what, 40% now of the plants and animals on the earth have, have vanished since 1970, I was alive in 1970. Since in my lifetime, that percentage of the plants and animals has disappeared. 78% of the uh, freshwater species have disappeared. 39% of marine wildlife. 39% of terrestrial wildlife. And, of course, it's worse in the developing countries where we're exporting our destruction. So this this silencing of the earth, this decimation of earth's lovely, lovely creatures um, is a problem we could, (laughs) we absolutely
1: have to address well you know I I didn't realize that it it was so high like 40% um, Mm -hmm. you know and you're in my lifetime is is uh, is pretty significant it's a short period of time in in you know the span of evolution that this has happened and um, knowing that this is something that we've done and I know that we have some urgency on this but um, it feels like it's still going really slowly
2: Compare it, for example, to the eighty percent of all species that were wiped out when an asteroid hit the Earth and uh, and killed most of the dinosaurs and other things. That was an eighty percent. That was an eighty percent extinction. Now we already have seventy eight percent of freshwater species, and we are approaching that. We are having the impact of an asteroid. Uh, it's it's hard to know because you can't see absence. It's hard to hear because you can't hear silence. Uh, but it is happening around us
1: at a tremendous rate. That's, that's pretty crazy. So, so what, what can people do to make changes? Yeah, so um, there are a lot of people who, who don't
2: think they can do anything. And I'm very concerned about them. You know, they're the climate deniers of the first order who don't think it's real. But then far more dangerous are the climate deniers of the second order who think that they, that, that these changes are happening, but there's nothing they can do. And we have to address that, first of all. Um, there's a paralysis in blind hope. We say, "Well, everything's going to be fine. don't worry, business will take care of it. And so there's this abdication of moral responsibility. I don't have to do anything. But there's a similar abdication when you say everything is going is is falling apart, and there's nothing I can do because then you don't have to do anything either. So hope or despair in their extremes are paralyzing. um but it's a false dilemma those are not our only alternatives because in the center is this middle ground and call it integrity where you live a life that you believe in where you match your acts to your beliefs and your values and there's a great freeing of that because you do what's right because you think it's right you act lovingly toward the earth because you love it you you live simply because you don't believe in taking more than your fair share and so there's this liberation it may not be that i can save the world it may not be that i can have any impact but i can live a life that i believe in and then there's this funny paradox that happens when we turn away from this easy optimism or we turn away from this easy despair and we live this life that we believe in there's a kind of courage that comes and there's a kind of exhilaration uh we can join together like we did in the great climate march um it, we can join together in in this conviction that we are doing what we believe is right. So let's take that as a first step to allow us to escape from despair and to allow ourselves to escape from from uh, easy
1: optimism. So I, I know some people do, as you said, they deny that that action can do anything. Um, what are your your comments to that? Okay, oftentimes people say,
2: you know, what can one person do? Well, my answer to that is stop being one person. You know, join up with your friends. Join up with a a, a list. Get on a listserv where they they will call you to join up with them in certain kinds of actions and ramp up your private, miserable private efforts to live um, sustainably uh, and, and ramp them up to another level so that you are joining up with other people. And there are three kinds of work that need to be done, again quoting Joanna Macy, um, and they all need to be done, and they all need to be done now. Uh, The first one is stop the harm. Stop the harm, stop the next pipeline, stop the next um, dredging pond, stop the next incursion onto indigenous land, stop the next poisoning, and we can do that. by getting in the way, making it expensive, making it uncertain, making it economically perilous to do the wrong thing. Um, It may be standing on a railroad track in front of an oil train. It may be suing for the poisoning of the water. It may be joining up with indigenous people to protect their treaty rights. But um, it may be It may be bringing your choir to stand in in the forest that's about to be clear-cut. It it may be pamphling at the grocery store. You see, that's the point. Stop the harm. Get in the way. Make it hard. Uh, The second thing is to find a better way. And here is where there's this ballooning of things that are happening all around the world. Better ideas. There's a better way to get to work. There's a better kind of energy. There's a better kind of food. Let's find it. Let's make it easy. Um, So this is this effort of imagination. Some people say that if, if we do lose the world, it will be because of a failure of the imagination. And writers tell one another, you know... Do the hard thing. It's, it's much easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism, but give it a try, imagine a better life. And so writers are calling on each other to do this work of the imagination. And then the third thing Joanna says is, um, reimagine who you are in relation to the natural world. We're not these comic book superheroes who are in charge of the earth. We can't destroy our habitats without destroying ourselves. We are deeply, beautifully, creatively, resiliently joined to the rest of the natural creation. And let us accept that and embrace it and be grateful for it.
1: That's beautiful. You know, and and, and um, you know, not everybody can do what what my mom did by saving up for twenty years and and retiring um, in the country to live off the land. But to know that there is something that we can do in the the community that we're in to to be able to make those changes, to have you know things move forward and to. Um, st- stop or slow down what's happening. That's it. I think that's encouraging to hear that. As you said, people are in despair. And to know that we can do something, I think, is very helpful.
2: You know, I was at a meeting of the, um, uh, I guess it's a the Society of, of Environmental Journalists, and one of the speakers was a representative of the um, American Petroleum Institute, and he was explaining away the deep horizon oil spill. And after, after it was over, I walked out with him. And i And I was, we were walking along this icy trail, and I decided to start a conversation. So I said, Do you have children? And you know where I was headed with that. And he did too. And he turned to me, all six, three of them or something like that big broad shoulders, big black overcoat, ball, shaved head. And he turned to me and he raised his finger into my face and he says, Don't you ever, 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 ever underestimate the power of the fossil fuel industry. And mm-hmm. at that point, I was laughing inside because I knew I was being bullied, and I knew that these times of transformation are times of bullying. But the ferocity of his response made me understand the fragility of his industry. They are, they are poised at the at, at right at the intersection of of the old way of living and the new way of living. And when they go, they will go fast. Um, we will find a better way. Um, we will find their fragility, the economic fragility. They are, their margins are so slender. Their physical fragility, they are extended in these delicate pipelines that extend all across the continent. Um, and their moral fragility is absolutely stunning. I believe that that right comes out in the end. Um, and I don't believe him. When he talks about the great powers even though i understand what they're doing to us and i understand how they've taken control of the united states government and i understand how they determine how we live our lives i think that there is as i say in my book a great tide rising and it's a tide of outrage and it's a tide of strength and confidence and it's a tide of imagination so i think we are living at the most exciting time in history when this this crisis is creating opportunities now for us to build the lives that we want
1: you know there in in pretty much every show that I've ever done there's this um, awareness to me that there's a train of thought or or something that happens where we can't see past ourselves Um, either we're dealing with addiction or we're dealing with with this issue just as this you know man said to you um, the denial that he's in of the destruction he's doing um, you know and and this has come up Um, over and over and over so much so that I actually did a show with somebody to explain to me why this was there (laughs) and uh, you know why human nature is to not see what's so obvious in front of us and um, I I think it happens in in other areas and I think it's happening here Um, you know this man was bullying you not to even remind him he didn't want to be reminded about his moral duty. He wanted to make his money and do what he was doing and not, not be aware and to keep his, his blinders up so he could look straight ahead and not see what he was doing.
2: Yeah, that's right. You know, in regard to your comment about that, it's how expensive it was for your mother to do what she has done. I I just want to point out that, that, There are actions that are hugely impactful that everyone can do that will save us money. You know, it's not that we have to buy organic sausages. We can stop eating meat. Raising livestock accounts for 15% of the global greenhouse gases, 15%. So what if we stopped eating meat? That would save us a lot of money. And don't just buy a bike. I know that is expensive or a Tesla or whatever hybrid car. Um, Stop international travel. And especially this eco travel, where people go to admire these beautiful ecosystems that are disappearing, partly because of their eco travel. Um, (laughs) You know, every every transatlantic flight melts, for all time, a chunk of Arctic ice that's equivalent to a refrigerator. So there are things that we can refuse to do. We can refuse to make ourselves to to let ourselves be made into foot soldiers in this war against the earth by turning our backs on some of these some of these things. And then the things that we can do, can you push a button? Can you click, can you click, I stand with you? Can you show up at the corner with the sign? These take nothing more than courage and the determination to do what's right
1: um yeah I I agree with you and I think this is a, a great topic to start 2018 because I think it's you know this is where everybody's we've just come out of um a time of of gluttony whether <laughs> that was <laughs> if, if the food that we ate the the overindulgence and presence the overindulgence in general and um to also be aware that um there's other things that that were affected with all of that as well. And if we're going to, um, you know, go on a diet and take care of ourselves, we should also take care of our, our mother and make sure that she's okay with everything that we're doing as well as our own bodies.
2: That's a that's a very beautiful thought. You know, we're in this time when so many uh, women in particular are are calling out the bullies and saying, I have been bullied, and comes another one who says, me too, me too. Well, Mm -hmm. did you see the cartoon that showed a picture of the earth, and there's a balloon coming out from her mouth, and she says, hashtag me too. And I think that that's right. We are a bullying culture, and it's the earth that's taking the brunt.
1: Yeah, and it's the same that same mentality where um, somehow we don't see what's around us, um, which I think is... Is a human nature when when we're sick, whether it's a mental or, or physical illness. I think um, we're we're so hurt and so sick and so. Um, Uh, selfish in ourselves because of that, that um, we can't see outside of that. But if we just open our eyes a little bit and look around, I think that can also change how we feel about ourselves because to get in in touch with nature helps us feel better. But if nature is not going to be there for very much longer, we're going to lose that. And I think that, you know, this is part of why there's so much depression and all these new illnesses that are increasing and and everybody's just not feeling well, I think we're losing touch with what's really, really important. I think you're right.
2: I think there's a great healing power in the natural world, and now it's time for us to give back that gift and turn our caring towards the healing of the natural world. And I can't think of any more joyous work than that, uh, and healthy work to be out there planting trees, to be out there protesting the poisoning of the river, and to be out there you know, raising your own vegetables. I hope you can in Calgary. Can you?
1: Um, yes, if we
2: have a background. <laughs> Yeah, right. um, I have a condo, um, yeah, think, so,
1: so only my little deck, but <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, that's that's great. So, yeah, we're, we, are, I think, need to encounter our own despair at the situation we're in, and consumerism is not the answer. You know, when we feel that something's lacking in our lives, we oftentimes go to the mall. We, we turn towards things, uh, the commodification of caring, the way that the environmental movement has been transformed into a "click here and donate ten dollars to save the world" uh, farce, instead of everyone out there doing it, uh, doing their best. The way that we that we shop and give gifts, I think, I think it just makes us sadder. And you're right. I think that that to find the true sources of our solace, we'll have to go outside.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're trying to fill a void with with all of this that can't be filled, in the way that we're doing it. Um, so, um, is there any way? Now, you know, one thing I want people to know um, how beautiful your book is, and um, you know, it takes this topic that can be very scientific, and and your stories in there are beautiful, and um, the way that 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 you put you put it out is 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 gorgeous. So, um, and we you know we've touched on some some of what's in there, but your book is very very different from from this conversation that we've had as well. Um, so, is there any way that that people can get a hold of your book, or you, if they have any more questions?
2: The book is a um, is a, a mixture, of weaving, an intentional weaving of stories like the one I began with and um, comments as we have progressed. Um, I do believe that it's important to reach people's hearts in a way. I want to open people's hearts without breaking them, and I think that the vehicle for that is stories, and oftentimes stories about what we love, Um the Children and the Rivers. So that's probably more of what my book is about than this kind of ranting that I've been doing, and I apologize <laughs> for that. So yes, this book is all over the place. Uh, you have a, a favorite local independent bookseller. You could go there and um, ask them to get it for you. You can, uh, of course, well, I'm. you, know, you can get it online um, if that's your choice. Um, or you can go to my website, which is www.riverwalking com, where you'll find all kinds of information about the book, including um, a study guide. If people want to get together with people and read the book together, and do a lot of things that are creative and energizing and uplifting and fun at the same time, so yeah, www.riverwalking.com. Well,
1: oh, perfect. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great conversation, and I, I absolutely loved your book.
2: Thank you so much for saying so, and thank you for inviting me, Rebecca. I wish you well.
1: You too. And I want to thank um, everybody for listening. Today we were talking with Kathleen Dean Moore, and the book was Great Tide Rising. Just be sure to make today a great day.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks.